1: welcome everyone to the positively Trek podcast we have an exciting auspicious week for Star Trek of course with the recent premiere of the I, I almost said Star Trek the Next Generation nope it's Star Trek Picard but kind of Star Trek the next anyway Barry how's it going <laughs> oh it's going
2: pretty well my good man it's been uh, it's been a busy time and uh, it's nice to have some some new Trek. Popping back into the uh, into the old feed again.
1: Yeah, and I mean this is exciting. We're a week into it. The second episode will be airing in just a couple days. Actually, tomorrow. By the time this episode comes out, and we're gonna be barreling full speed ahead, ten episodes until that season finale. Uh, it's gonna go quickly before we know it. So I figured it was a good time to kind of sit. And talk about this first episode. We don't tend to do episode reviews on this show, but I felt like this is kind of a special thing that needs a bit of observance from Positively Trek. I would agree with you in the sense that
2: I think we—I'm um, loath to review a first episode. I guess is that sense of like saying like mm-hmm. this is good or bad. I think this is a. Um, Let's take apart all of the things, because uh, as you were showing me before we started recording, uh, your notes for your Kurtratz video is going to be quite the the affair, I I would imagine.
1: (laughs) Yeah, there is a lot in this episode, so I'm excited to talk about it. Again, like you said, not necessarily a review, but more of a just kind of acknowledgement of this momentous thing in the Star Trek universe. So, you know, this show talks a lot about current Star Trek events as well as big issues. And this is the biggest thing going on in Star Trek right now. So it makes sense. But before we get to that, we do have some news this week. And of course... Like I've been saying, the biggest news is Picard, but there are a few other things that we want to talk about. So I like this first news story, not necessarily something I'm going to pick up, but I do like that this is happening. We have Star Trek Lower Decks volume one soundtrack getting a special vinyl release this March from Lakeshore Records. And Star Trek music is something that I've always loved. I think is very important. And I think music from something like Lower Decks might get overlooked sometimes, but they are doing some great stuff on Lower Decks, and it's kind of cool they're getting this special release.
2: Absolutely, if I could, if I could geek out a little bit, um, maybe la listening to film style here. I love the rich tones of a vinyl record, especially when you're listening to orchestral music like Lower Decks, and um, and that's wonderful. I don't like vinyl just because it's really hard to move. Basically, mm. like you know, when the time comes, if you have to move from house to house and you have a you know. 50 to 100 record collection, you are lifting a lot of very heavy vinyl. And that's, maybe I'm just being an old crank, but I I can't lift that much anymore. And it makes me really tired. And I would much rather just keep my music on the computer or on my phone or something. But (laughs) getting to listen, you know, I, I was sort of imagining the idea of getting to put like, big, those big old reel-to-reel styled headphones on and just kicking back and listening to the Lower Decks opening theme, which I have to say kind of has a, it's a mixture I find between Gustav Holst's uh, The Jupiter Suite mixed with Camille Saint-Saëns' The Aquarium. The last one I can't remember, but uh, I'll bring it up in a a following episode or perhaps later on in the episode, Dan, but I love the fact that it, it the opening theme, especially, does kind of take us back to the next generation, um, and obviously the motion the motion pictures uh, film as well. But I just love the fact that they're doing this. It's nice. I think people are going to enjoy it. And if you are into lifting vinyl when you
1: move or when you have to move, then I think this is the product for you. Yeah, for sure. It looks like a lot of fun for collectors. Uh, The contents leave out about a dozen tracks from the digital release simply due to capacity limitations. But still, if you have uh, a collection of vinyl, I think this would look really cool on a shelf next to them. And pulling that down every once in a while and giving it a spin. Ah, that sounds like so much fun.
2: That would be just kind of fun. And now I'm just doing a quick little geek thing here. So apparently a record can get you about 220 megabytes on either side. So that is definitely why they can't get those Mm. extra 10 songs
1: on there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, moving on now to comics news, we have quite a bit of interesting comics news this week because IDW is just like, (laughs) they are cranking out these books. I I can't believe how much Star Trek content we have. And now they've announced a new comic miniseries set right after Star Trek The Motion Picture. Star Trek The Motion Picture Echoes is the title. So this is really fascinating. I, I, you know, say what you will about the motion picture era. It has a very distinctive look. I think it might be really cool to see that in comic book form. And as I've said several times on this podcast, the motion picture will always hold a really special place in my heart. So I'm kind of eager to get a look at this.
2: Me too. I think the artwork is phenomenal, what I'm seeing so far. It's in a style that I really like. And yeah, I think they they really incorporate the look of that you know late nineteen seventies reboot, I guess you could say, of Star Trek. Everyone's in their what looks like their they're kind of like p- pajama uniforms and stuff like that, which I think is wonderful. Um, I hope they revisit sort of the way. Spock was portrayed and Kirk was portrayed. They don't have to worry about anyone's arms in this. Of course, some of the big complaints about the motion picture is everyone sort of stands there with their arms hanging to their sides. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I, I, like you, love the motion picture, I think, specifically for its, its aesthetic and to some degree its nostalgia. I think it's a good addition. And I probably will pick this up, at least in digital form, just to check it out. Because, yeah, IDW is just
1: pumping them out. So (laughs) let's go for it. For sure. And we do have an official synopsis as well. Echoes pits the venerated Admiral James T. Kirk and his crew against enemies, both terrifying and shockingly familiar. When a space anomaly thrusts a criminal mastermind pursued by a very determined pilot on a mission into our universe, the Enterprise must stop them from unintentionally starting a war with the Romulans and unleashing a super weapon of foreign technology into the system. But things get infinitely more complicated when these newcomers to our reality remove their helmets, revealing that they're doppelgangers of our beloved heroes. (laughs) Mm, Maybe
2: some mirror universe
1: vibes here or something like that. Yeah, sounds maybe something along those lines, so fascinating, as Spock would say. Yeah,
2: I think it'll be cool to see how they portray the Romulans in this kind of world. Are they going to kind of seventiesify sify them? Because, you know, if you think about the, the next generation, the Romulans getting their 90s shoulder pads, um, mm-hmm. I wonder how they're going to do it. I think it'll be neat. It'll, I'm hoping it'll be something of like a blend between the next generation, what we see, and the original kind of very iridescent, colorful Rom- Romulan uniforms.
1: Mm-hmm. I'm also thinking back, and I know there's no real connection here, but... The Romulans in like the DC comics run back in the 80s and stuff, they were very, I don't know, I felt like they wore a lot of like Power Rangers type suits and (laughs) and had really big huge weapons and stuff. Ready to go snowmobiling? (laughs) Exactly, yeah. Well, speaking of IDW, we have a look at the comics coming out in May and the slate as we've kind of hinted at is huge. We have the Star Trek ongoing series. The Star Trek Defiant spin off series from that. And what I really want to highlight is this annual 2023 issue which promises to be a huge crossover with everyone in Star Trek, I guess, if you look at this cover.
2: There's so much happening in every single one. It's uh, it's sort of like the first episode of season three of Picard, the amount of Easter eggs everywhere and nods to certain pieces here and there. Yeah, you see a whole lot of stuff happening from a whole lot of different places. You've got Worf and Spock standing next to each other, um, you've got Belana Torres looking like she's about to get into fight with a mirror universe of herself. And then at the end, there's just this giant Scotty head in a psychedelic <laughs> Jeffrey's tube. I just can't get enough of that one. Wow.
1: <laughs> yeah, definitely. And the, the annual issue sounds really interesting with this official synopsis we got as well for that. So it's coming out May 31st, written by Colin Kelly and Jackson Lansing, with art by Rachel Stott. So uh, yeah, uh, let's, let's read this synopsis because this sounds amazing. The Theseus crew finally get a chance to relax, but just as everyone settles down, a strange signal comes in a message that reads, Mr. Scott, we have a problem. Bring help. Jim. Upon finding the source of the signal, the Theseus Bridge crew step into a fully activated holodeck, recreating the bridge of the original USS Enterprise, complete with a discovery of some strange new guest stars. (laughs) And the quote marks are in the text. I'm not adding those. (laughs) Join the writers behind the critically acclaimed Star Trek series, Jackson Lansing and Colin Kelly for an exciting romp through the history of Trek with art by Rachel Stott. So this looks incredible. And this cover, we've got, we've got Kelvin Kirk in the background. We've got Giorgio, We've got, uh, I see Saru and Quark and Archer, <laughs> everybody, anybody you can think of is there.
2: It gives me real amalgam vibes. If you read comics in the mid nineties, when the X-Men Age of Apocalypse thing really kind of threw Marvel Comics sideways, and then they kind of went back to Prime, but they also did this whole thing where DC and Marvel put all their superheroes together for a very short period of time, if you remember. It was called Amalgam or Amglam or whatever, and mm-hmm. it really getting those vibes out of it. There's a real kind of mid-90s, let's-just-try-everything comic book vibe to this, and it I, it kind of takes me back. So I, I, I don't know if I can devote the mental energy to reading all of these and what's all going to happen, but maybe I'll check it out.
1: (laughs) Yeah, there is a lot going on because we didn't even mention that, you know, the Deep Space Nine Dog of War miniseries is still happening in May and we have some great covers of that. Uh, My favorite of that one is Vic Fontaine with the the pupper playing piano (laughs) behind him. (laughs) That's great. That's so good. Oh,
2: Jimmy Darren. Love that guy.
1: Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Well, our final bit of news before we get to our discussion this week is a bit of sad news. Gerald Fried, the Emmy-winning composer of Star Trek music the from the original series, has passed away. Really, I mean, you listen to music from TOS, you have heard this guy's music, and I mean, there's a certain famous fight scene between Kirk and Spock that you will immediately recognize the music to. This guy has made a huge mark not just on Star Trek, but pop culture. Uh, he also did scores for Roots and Gilligan's Island. And I mean, I, I'm re, I'm rewatching Futurama right now with my wife, Nikki, and the number of times they riff on that TOS fight scene music. Like it's the national anthem of Zoidberg's people, for example, yeah. when he has to return home to fight for a mate, like, <laughs> uh, <laughs> This this guy was amazing and uh, very sad news today. Well, as a person who likes, you know, very big orchestral
2: bits of music, you know, he he pulled from, again, some of the greats. I get a—actually, a, speaking of Gustav Holst and the Planet Suite, there's a, a real Mars theme sort of feel to— uh, to his Amok time that and then i just think about me playing with my pets i would sometimes play that when when they were battling a toy or something like that it's always fun i i do have to give a quick shout out though um his his title music to uh, Kirk Douglas's Paths of Glory, which is mm. set in the First World War, and I would say is still one of the greatest war movies ever made. Um, that next to, I would say, the Battle of Algiers. Losing him is sad, but he leaves a legacy that uh, is a gift that'll keep on giving. I'm looking forward to people maybe looking into his music a bit more and the cinema that
1: he was a part of. Absolutely. Well, let's take a brief break, and when we come back, let's talk Star Trek Picard. This episode of Positively Trek would not be possible without the support of those of you who have gone to patreon.com slash positivelytrek and signed up to become a Patreon supporter of the show. Thank you all so very much for your donations. They truly do help bring this show to you each week. Thank you especially to our Constitution class supporters, Joyce Marin, Jim Stoffel, Jesse Earle, Dave Garcia, Rick Young, and Paul D. Kinnear. If you'd like to become a supporter of the show, go to patreon.com slash positivelytrek. You can get perks such as early access to episodes, ad-free versions of episodes, exclusive content, shout-outs, associate producer credits, and much more. Once again, that's patreon.com slash positivelytrek. Thank you all once again. And now, let's get back to the show. So... This is kind of a first for this new era of Star Trek in that we are starting a final season of a show, which we haven't done yet in this new era of Trek, as I say. So, you know, Discovery is still going, Lower Decks, Prodigy, Strange New Worlds is just starting out. I mean, this is kind of interesting. I'm, I'm really curious to see how this group of people... Ends a show and with one episode out so far, we kind of get a little bit of a a hint as to how they're constructing this season and stuff. So the first episode of season three of Star Trek Picard entitled The Next Generation, which I thought was kind of cheeky fun. And we start out with, normally I go through these episodes and do Easter egg videos where I point out all the Easter eggs. It's very rare that the very first frame of a show is just 100% a big Easter egg. Yeah. And we get that with this in the 25th century in that Wrath of Khan font. So Super.
2: In the 25th, yeah, instead of the 24th century, right? Like 23rd in Wrath sorry, of yeah. Khan, yeah. Once I saw that, I was just like, okay, now I know. Now I know what they're going to do. They're going to steal a ship. They're gonna, you know, <laughs> all these things are going to happen. It's good, though. I don't mind it. And in fact, actually, not even just Wrath of Khan. It feels like it's kind of like... It feels like they're going to try to go in a couple of different directions, ultimately. Though I'd say the Wrath of Khan is the most heavy vibe. And yeah, all the stay tuned. Dan is going to do a big YouTube video on the whole thing, on all of the minute details, because good lord in heaven, it was like a buffet of nostalgia at the beginning, hey?
1: Yeah, it was a little bit nuts. That video should be out by the time this episode comes out, so... Uh, yeah it's it's wild. it's twenty eight minutes straight of just Easter Eggs. Um, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's kind of crazy, <laughs> which is interestingly enough, If you listen to Patrick Stewart describing the project a few years ago, sounded like something he kind of wanted to avoid, right? He didn't want to get the band back together, as they say, and and rehash the next generation and bring that all back together. He wanted to do something different, which the show certainly did for the first two seasons. So I'm curious, Barry, just overall, what were your kind of thoughts on seasons one and two, or maybe separately, if you can't really lump them together, if if you have different thoughts there?
2: Well, I think the big point about uh, Star Trek Picard, and I have a complicated relationship with Star Trek Picard. I I was really fortunate to have been asked by Bill and Dan at the Trek Geeks to host Picard Live, which was a kind of a synopsis live Episodic thing where we would talk about each of the uh, pieces of Star Trek: Picard as we went on, and spoke about it live with people commenting and guests coming on and whatnot. And and I really enjoyed that. And I found Star Trek the first season of Star Trek: Picard really, um, really tried to set a lot of things down. It seemed like it had a very solid kind of message on where it wanted to go ish. And as it was moving along as a season, I felt like parts were kind of breaking off a little bit. They they didn't it didn't conclude in a way that I was like, what? Okay, okay, all right. I guess this is how it ends kind of thing. And and in my time of rewatching that first season, I felt like, okay, they're, they're really going to have to account for a lot of things, but they've also got a lot of, you know, pieces rolling. The second season, I know like people are very upset with, you know, how only strange new worlds and um, kind of lower decks are episodic. Everything else is storyline based. Well, I feel like each of the st- Picard series or season so far have been like their own episode, um, unrelated to one another to a certain degree. So I feel like with, with, with a bit of constructive criticism, my hope is that they have a story figured out and they stick to it. Because it's happened in Discovery in the first couple of seasons where they did a massive tone shift and a massive shift away from what the original plan was. And I think that's ultimately what's happened with Picard. And for them to sort of sprinkle all this nostalgia on us, I feel like it is kind of like they're shaking the et- etch a sketch a little here. <laughs> and like Picard's androidness, I don't remember that being brought up. Now, I've only seen the episode once, but did that even get mentioned? Right? Did, like, Riker come up and, like, knock on his forehead and be like, hey, you know, Jarlouk, are you in there? (laughs) Kind of thing? Like, (laughs) nothing. So I feel very much like if you haven't seen the previous two seasons, that's totally okay. You're not going to miss anything. Because they've also, like... Aside from Laris, who remains from the actual, like, original piece of that series? Like, every other cast member has sort of been, like, unceremoniously shed from the story, uh, leaving Picard behind. Which, again, isn't necessarily a problem. Like, I'm, I'm not going to say that, like, this is, like, something to say, like, well, this series has been a mess all along or anything like that. They're trying things. My only hope, ultimately, if I if I reflect back to season one and two, is you've put a lot of really cool stuff here in the first episode are you going to be returning to them all? Because the first episode really fills me with some anticipation. So if they drop some of these big plot points and just leave them dangling loose like they have before, I will be disappointed.
1: Is that fair? (laughs) Absolutely, yeah. And and I I think your point about leaving Seasons 1 and 2 behind, I I don't want to say they think of them as a failure. I don't think that's necessarily the case, but I feel like they tried some stuff and the response maybe wasn't quite what they wanted. So they said, okay, well let's, let's give them what they want a little bit, which is shaky ground for me. Like I, I'm not the big, I'm not a huge fan of a fan base dictating where something goes sometimes. Like sometimes that can get a little iffy that said I'm, I'm heartened and I'm excited by what I've seen so far. And Yeah. Leaving everything behind from seasons one and two with the exception of Laris and, and I would add Rafi as well is back in this. Yeah. Rafi. Sorry. Yeah. Forgetting her. But besides that, like they really have left a lot of stuff behind and my worry and my kind of sadness, especially for the folks who worked very hard on those first two seasons, I'm kind of flashing forward to like. 15, 20 years from now, when people are discovering Star Trek and, you know, the old school fans are, are advising them on what they should watch. I could totally see somebody saying like, oh, watch this, watch that. Uh, when you get to Picard, just skip seasons one and two, go right to season three. And that makes me sad. Like that, that makes me sad. Uh, but I can, I get that as well. So, mm, I don't know. I guess. Yeah. To,
2: to kind of like Land my 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 plane of constructive criticism um at least with with one engine still going. I would say that watching the first two seasons of Picard is entertaining and like stuff happens and it gets resolved and I think the actors do a relatively good job of it so it's entertaining and fun but if you if you want something that I feel like I don't know I always go back to like what seasons of the new Star Trek would I like happily go back to anything after season probably well season three and Onward and Discovery I've rewatched I watched Lower Decks pretty often. Um, Strange New Worlds is going to get a rewatch. Prodigy is going to get a rewatch. So it's, you know, I always go by rewatchability. And Aside from, like, making sure that I have context when you and I talk, I probably wouldn't go back to Picard Season 1 and 2 either. Just for the sake that there's just so many loose ends, that it, it kind of, I don't know. So let, let's make sure it, it goes, and, and I'm very happy with all of the nostalgia, but I really hope this isn't going to be a nostalgia-driven series only. I hope they just give us yeah. this big glut, this kind of big, like dollop of nostalgia right on top of all this with a cherry and then we can move on and, and get this get to the story right because Worf is Different. Crusher's in trouble, and I saw just recently on on the Twitterverse there's a picture of Riker um, when he's on the bridge of the Titan, and then the next scene is the opening title credit to Lord of the Rings: Return of the King. So it's just Riker, <laughs> and then it says Return of the King, and so oh nice, yeah. Oh, he's
1: so, Riker the White now. That's nice, right? Exactly. He's a wonderful,
2: <laughs> wonderful person, and I mean Jonathan Frakes is a wonderful person, and I love it when he gets work. Yeah, here, here, in front or behind the camera. Oh man, I hope I hope he
1: gets to direct some episodes i think he is i think he's slated to direct a couple episodes perfect i'm pretty sure i'd have to double check that but i think that is the case yeah so yeah the this kind of shedding of what this show was in seasons one and two interestingly goes beyond the story so in in seasons one and two we had like i said uh patrick stewart saying we don't want to get everybody back and now season three hey we're getting everybody back and And that's fun. But beyond that, the show looks different too. And it's done in a way that's very different from any of the live action series we've seen so far. The opening credits are no longer the opening credits. They're at the end of the episode, which... Was a little sad. You know, I was kind of missing that. I'm in my old man yells at cloud mode, you know, (laughs) ah, that's not how you used to do it. On the flip side of that, the one thing that I loved was seeing the title card for the episode on screen, which is something live action new Star Trek has not done. So Mm -hmm. no Discovery, no Strange New Worlds, no Picard up till now has done that. And we got to see part one, the next generation on screen, which... You know, that makes my old man yells at Cloud Self very happy.
2: (laughs) (laughs) What do you think of Terry Metallus coming on? Like, he's done stuff like 12 Monkeys uh, Mm -hmm. in the past, you know? Like, he definitely has an interesting uh, pedigree, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, that was one thing that, like, I was very excited about with regards to season two, with some of the stuff they were doing, and then the way that season kind of went made me a little bit more trepidatious, but then you kind of learn that like, yeah, he was showrunner for the first half of season two, then mm. he kind of left to work on season three yeah, and that's where I feel things kind of went wonky. So I'm like, oh, okay, maybe, yeah. uh, I don't know. So, but uh, so far- I I love his enthusiasm. Like he's a fan. He is a capital F fan, which is sometimes good, sometimes bad. Like, I don't think there's a universal rule you can apply. Like Nicholas Meyer was the furthest thing from a fan when he came in and his Star Trek was incredible. Yeah. John Logan, who wrote Nemesis, apparently was a huge fan. And, um, well, moving on from Nemesis anyway. So it, it's not a hard and fast rule, but. I love his enthusiasm. <laughs> well, and he also did write for um, Enterprise too.
2: Um, one of the later series, three, I think.
1: Yeah, and he was a production assistant on the show before that as well.
2: And I mean, to be honest with you, we gotta we gotta agree here. Like Enterprise got better with with time like seasons three and four were delightful right if i think Mm -hmm. about like you know you've got your zindi arc i guess you could say goes through that and it was very interesting right like Mm -hmm. i enjoyed it quite a bit
1: yeah and season four i when it first aired i was honestly saying that was the best season of star trek since deep space nine season six you know
2: I think the series the season is in good hands. I hope he ends it nicely. I hope he you know sticks around because this is the point is so much so much has been brought up so much has happened right. You know you're talking about the Easter eggs immediately like even look at Bev Crusher's coat jacket right. It looks like yeah. it's from the Wrath of Khan. Um, are we we're spoilers in here. Are we, are we given spoilers?
1: Um, I think we can, let's, let's give the, uh, internationally recognized spoiler warning here. Yes. I think.
2: So if you have not seen Star Trek Picard season three, episode one, and you don't mind having major plot points you've given away, then continue listening. And if you don't, please stop listening, put it on pause, go watch the episode and then come back. So what do you think about uh, the stuff she's carrying? And I know, I know we're getting into a bit of the, the Easter eggy bits here, but I think they're also big plot points. She's carrying Jack around with her. What do you think of that?
1: Like, as in like all his stuff? Yeah. The same case that yeah. we saw in Family. That. Okay. So here's one of my things that I think is kind of funny. And the writers in the past have kind of done Beverly dirty, unfortunately, in that in in the films, the TNG films, she was basically a cameo in if, in a couple of them. And so these these Easter eggs, these things she's carrying around, it's funny how they had to like stretch to find things to pop. Like she like she has the pearl necklace that she wore when she went on the holodeck in the first season episode, the big goodbye. Like. That's how far down they had to reach to find things that mattered to Beverly Crusher because you know beyond putting the anaphasic candle ghost thing <laughs> on that table, like the most meaningful thing is the Jack Crusher case. Absolutely,
2: I feel like that's going to be a big plot point though, and I, I and obviously with um, the uh, her her kiddo uh, at the end, which is another massive Wrath of Khan connection here. The the hidden son appears, right? I feel like. This this is going to not only be a Picard heavy, I feel like by introducing Beverly Crusher like this, I think feel like she is going to be kind of his foil almost, maybe to some degree, or, or or the other side of the story, maybe.
1: Yeah, that could be. I'm I'm really fascinated to see these dynamics and the revelation that neither Picard nor the rest of the crew has even seen Crusher for over 20 years. Mm-hmm. That was kind of a massive bombshell dropped you know what led to that what's going on there yeah. I mean I have a couple of guesses but. yeah <laughs> <laughs> and you know looking at
2: looking at how he was sort of wistfully looking at his past but then also saying he can kind of move on from it I find it interesting when Laris talks to him about Crusher I feel like in earlier seasons he would have maybe had more to say the way he was characterized but in this case I feel very much that Jean-Luc is being more a Jean-Luc that I would recognize from the TV series. Doesn't he say something along the lines of like, we were close or something like that when, when Laris mentions her?
1: Yeah. And, and Laris even Laris ever the person who just goes (laughs) straight to the point says you were, you were lovers once and, or you tried to be lovers. I think she said.
2: So, I mean, obviously this calls the question, is this son Jean-Luc's? right? Is, that's a big question. Um, I actually have other thoughts of what might be happening there too, but we'll see. Do you think she's going to be sort of like the chase to this entire season? Or do you think they they won't do that necessarily?
1: It feels like she's pretty central. And I mean, early days, of course, we're, we're not sure, but it really feels like at least with her whole situation being the inciting incident for the season, even that really excites me just because, like I said, how... She, her character has kind of been relegated to background in the past. So I'm really excited to see her being more central. And I really hope that carries through for the season. One little possible mild flex. I don't know if you remember.
2: It was one of the panels, either the year it was announced or the year after it was announced. I can't remember, but Gates McFadden when she mentioned when sir pat came out and said jean luc picard is is back and we all stood up and yelled and cheered and it was an amazing moment and this could be apocryphal but gates from what i remember said that she was actually in the bathroom at the time and like heard commotion <laughs> and was like what's happening and they're like sir pat's doing picard again she's like oh that's nice and just kind of like moved on and like thinking now she's like the focal one of the major focal points of season 3 i do think as much as you and I kind of talked a little bit about what, you know, Sir Patton, the original showrunner writers were saying that this is going to be kind of, you know, Jean luc going and doing his own thing with a smaller non-Starfleet affiliated crew, kind of going to adventure and adventure kind of thing. And that just dropped out. As much as it is this massive shift and everything, getting to see these familiar faces, getting to see these actors who, you know, from the STLVs I've seen and been to these people are ready to act, right? Like when I spoke, I, I got a chance for um, uh, Jonathan Frakes to sign one of my Eagle Moss Titan ships. And I asked him if the Titan was going to show up in an episode of Star Trek soon. And he leaned in real close to my ear and he went, we'll see. And let out a big <laughs> cackle. And, you know, just thinking like, these people were ready to do this for a while. They've wanted to do this for a while. Um, I'm sure getting the, the the Star Trek, you know, TV series paycheck is nice. But also like, One thing I did notice about this, as opposed to the other two seasons of Picard, you can really tell everyone's having a good time. Like the actors seem happy. Whereas Mm. I didn't always get that impression from seasons one and two of Picard or Discovery at the beginning. There was a lot of like, I don't know, there's just a mood Mm -hmm. and it's a happier tone for
1: sure. I would absolutely agree with that. Uh, I think nobody exemplifies that more in this episode, then Jonathan Frakes is Riker. He is <laughs> such a way about him that just makes me smile every time he's on screen. He's kind uh, of a pixie. <laughs> he's, a like a, bit, he, he's like a little bit. He's like a macho pixie. <laughs> I love him. Yeah, I think the only time I was like, "Uh oh," was when he was talking about Deanna and Kestra and yeah. what's going on there. Uh oh, that that's an uh oh. But beyond that, like, I'm thinking his meeting with. Sidney <laughs> LaForge yeah. on the bridge of the Titan that was so delightful
2: it's, it's good like, back and forth there was good he, he he adds the banter that that you want right
1: yeah yeah what did they call you the academy oh, I can't remember <laughs> crash LaForge oh yeah because you crashed a shuttlecraft uh-huh. twice
0: <laughs> okay <Yeah. laughs>
1: How amazing would that be for one of these young actors? And and maybe, I know not everybody in the world is a Star Trek fan, but like, oh man, sitting on the, on the bridge of a starship, you know, putting your hand to your ear and saying control tower reading, sir, and, yeah. <laughs> and getting ready to leave space dock. That's my dream. I feel like Captain Harriman, there we go, on the Enterprise B, we have a group of living legends aboard. <laughs> yeah, they're right? like, oh, great, thanks. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> well, and this is very much, you know, there's an undiscovered country vibe to that as well, mm-hmm. um, and a generations vibe, where I, I just feel like in this case, there's no necessary torch to pass. There's nothing radically coming out to me that, that they're here to bring anyone into the new New Trek world, I feel like this is something of a final chapter, even in the way this first first episode is portrayed. And I don't mind. Like, they're always like, oh, they'll pass on the torch. And I'm like, well, I feel like the torch has already passed. Discovery is doing well, and Strange New Worlds is doing well. Like, there's other pieces of this. And I know that there isn't a lot of next generation sort of era specific stuff happening right now, necessarily. But I don't, again, I don't really mind. I don't mind that this could just be a final chapter story.
1: The, the passing the torch thing is interesting, though, because now that I think about it, I'm like, okay, so we have a Beverly Crusher kid, possibly a Picard kid. Mm-hmm. We have... Uh, a Forge kid and, you know, spoilers for trailers and other stuff. There's more coming. Yeah, You know, is is there going to be a new crew out there led by Alexander, Worf's son, I guess? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, we, we could have TNG babies, the show or something. I don't necessarily want that, but yeah. that could be.
2: Well, I mean, they're doing that on Netflix. I just finished watching the series of that 90s show. It was again, like maybe like a 10 or 11 episode arc of basically what happened to Eric and Donna's daughter, who is named Leia, which is I don't know. There's again just a lot of a lot of nostalgia and a lot of, hey look, remember that and stuff. And again, I could tell that the the audience in that show, or sorry, in the audience, I could tell that the actors in that show new end cameo returns. And then obviously Red and Kitty are back kind of full time. And of course, Red Foreman, um, Kurtwood Smith, he, he actually Mm -hmm. played in, uh, Voyager. I think it was for a while.
1: Yeah. He, he was, uh, Anorax in Voyager. He was the Federation president in Star Trek six and he was the Cardassian security chief of deep space nine in, in.
2: Yeah. Holy crap. I forgot about the Cardassian part. I loved it when he had that amazing, the amazing facial hair. Um, when he was the Federation president. That was yeah. my favorite.
1: <laughs> oh, and he was also in Lower Decks
2: as well. Holy crap, that guy gets work. But anyway, back back to it. Though it was just a nostalgia-heavy romp through, hey, remember that 70s show and how your parents liked this stuff and now you're old enough to be your parents when that 70s show came out, so we're going to do this, that 90s show. I feel like, you know, uh, here we are, sands in the Hourglass sort of thing with, with Picard. I don't personally want... A, we're the children of the Enterprise D slash E crew traveling around space, having new adventures. I just, I don't know. I don't find that appealing at all (laughs) personally. I don't know if that's positive or not, but, uh,
1: yeah. Yeah. No, I hear you for sure. I, I wouldn't mind something with Sydney LaForge as a, as a character. I, I just, from this one episode, I'm like, I want to know more about her. She's very interesting. Yes. Yeah, just as a character in and of herself. Like we haven't even really seen her with regards to Jordy. We just know she's Jordy's kid. That's not the most interesting thing about her, I don't think. Yeah, so the Titan. Let's talk a little bit about this ship because I I have some thoughts and there's kind of two sides to this. First of all... They kind of want to have their cake and eat it too. If you read some supplementary material outside of the show, which I don't think is necessary. And I don't think what they did is necessary. They said like Riker's original Luna class Titan was heavily damaged. They brought it into space dock intending to refit and repair it decided Oh, it's too far gone. Let's build pretty much a whole new ship. But like, let's use the components of the Titan in this new ship. So like this new ship has the bones of the old Titan, which makes no sense to me whatsoever. Like if you're going to have a Titan A, just have a Titan A, say the first one is destroyed, whatever. I think they're trying to, you know, fan service, make some connections and, and that sort of thing. Totally unnecessary. B and I know there's mixed feelings on this. I think this ship is freaking gorgeous. Yeah. I love it. It's beautiful. I, I absolutely love it. <laughs> I just
2: can't I just can't be mad at uh, the ship designers. I just can't. And and as much as I actually the um the original Titan was just absolutely gorgeous to me as well i loved the the downward facing sloped um that kind of 45 degree angle nacelle uh, look to it um i would love to travel around in that ship as much as possible but the new titan as much as i heard they were redesigning it i'm like really that's not ness oh my god it's beautiful so yeah mm-hmm. it's okay i don't mind new ships new ships is always something i like to see there's a lot of the the original enterprise or sorry there's a lot of the refit feel to this this titan um which obviously calling it the a gives you again that sort of feel it's got the glowing deflector it's wonderful i love the ship and uh, i look forward to seeing it get into some serious action
1: there's a little i don't know if you caught this one there's a shot of a pathfinder class ship on Rafi's big spy board uh from star trek online and the label above it, very, very faint, but if you pause and look, it says Voyager B. Ooh, I didn't spot that. That sounds cool. So that would be the third Voyager.
2: <laughs> yeah. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Cool. I also really liked um, Crusher's ship as well. Um mm, the it, Ilios. Yeah. yeah. It's it's a um it's a unique design, I think, is the best way to put that one. I found it kind of weirdly ugly. Um, when I first saw it, but I also thought the same of the Defiant. So maybe it'll be
1: a ship Mm. that'll grow on us. So the first officer of the Titan is a familiar face, Mm -hmm. as Riker says. We have Commander Seven of... Oh, sorry, no. Commander Annika Hansen. Yes.
2: I was about to correct you.
1: (laughs) Because apparently her captain feels it's his place to dictate what name she uses, which I, I found bit of an interesting parallel to some of the discussions slash dictates put forward by certain parts of our society yes interesting
2: and 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 I'm not trying to make excuses for um for Riker but I can completely understand his desire to not have really any references to the Borg
1: oh Shaw you mean yeah oh
2: sorry Shaw yeah if you think about the Federation's back and forth with the Borg its relationship that has been always very negative, I can understand to some degree not wanting to bring that up. I, I think the 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 relationship that the Federation has to the Borg and those people who might necessarily be in between it, you're not dealing with sort of an oppressed oppressor. I feel like you're dealing with two very equally capable of oppression oppressing groups right the federation sometimes gets known as kind of like the diet borg right in the sense that the federation (laughs) also assimilates to some degree but they assimilate through diversity kind of thing right i get i I, yeah i can see where they're going with some of that i just don't know if that plot point holds as much just given the background and the history
1: yeah it's interesting shaw's perspective and and, i mean i can understand that as well i think it's misplaced where he's directing that. And it's obvious he has some animosity towards the Borg. I mean, obviously who wouldn't, but, you know his kind of chastising of Picard and Seven as former ex Borg. Yeah, and that was definitely a bit of a bit of a hint of some prejudice there. But I would I would almost liken it to you know back in the day when Worf first joined Starfleet. There's someone like that name is too Klingon. You have to call yourself Mike. That I can't. You know, mm. I don't know. It just it felt definitely icky to me that and obviously Seven of Nine doesn't like having to call herself Annika Hansen. No,
2: she she I mean Seven's entire arc has been one of finding yourself into extremely homogenizing civilizations, right?
1: Mhm. And part of her big arc in season 2 was the fact that people look at her differently because she's Borg. So this is definitely reinforcing that that she's still made to feel less than because of her past kind of thing. So, mhm. Interesting to see where that goes. There's some hints in the closing credits, I think, that might give some insight into Shaw as well. I guess, yeah, let's talk about Shaw a bit then because I think this guy deserves his own section of this episode because he is brilliantly played by Todd Stashwick. I, <laughs> I've i said in the live show, like, I've watched this episode four times. I've rewatched that dinner scene between Shaw, Picard, and Riker and Seven Eight times. That is so good. Like he is a character that at this point you love to hate, but the actor is playing him so well. It is so beautiful.
2: I love the love to hate people. And I mean like actors that you kind of dislike, but like, you know, maybe a bit of a Jellicoe vibe to him. To some
1: degree, I feel like Styles in Star Trek Three as well. I'm getting some vibes where he's got his little riding crop and like this is his ship and it's run tight.
2: I didn't even think about that. Yeah, he is a bit of a Styles, isn't he? <laughs> well, and again, they're pulling from from each um, series just a little bit here and there, right? I mean, if we're into spoilers and stuff like that, uh, Amanda Plummer is in here, and uh, we get yeah. we get some serious uh, undiscovered country you know feel right obviously with her coming in and I I can't not think about her opening scene in Pulp Fiction when she's (laughs) standing in a sundress holding a 38 special in a in a LA diner swearing at everybody she she definitely pulls a bit of that out uh that kind of manic anger which I do find only Amanda Plummer can do. But I, I think I where I'm getting at here is I wonder where Shaw's going to land with this new villain and how he's going to respond to her. Either he's going to be a heroic, brave fighter against her or something's going down. That's what I'm thinking.
1: Uh, this this actor, he's so good. He's actually been in Star Trek before as well. He was the Romulan spy on Vulcan in the closing moments of the Enterprise season four episode K- Kirshara. <laughs> Where Administrator Vlas is like, you failed, and he's like, the unification of Vulcan and Romulus will happen, or something like that, yeah. What a find! Dan, you're a freaking pro, what the heck, I
2: I didn't, like, I see he, like, we're obviously, we have website pages open, and we're, we're looking at names, so we know we're doing <laughs> correctly here, but it says recurring, and I'm like, what else has he recurred in? How has he been in, like, I haven't seen him specifically, but there you have it. You found it.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I can't credit just myself. Others have pointed that out. So, but uh, he's incredible. That whole scene, that line where he's like, look, I love you guys. I really do. I love reading about your crazy irresponsible. <laughs> he's yeah. so good. Well, that's the Jellico, right? That's the, that
2: part of like, we're going to stick to the book here, you know?
1: Yeah. And the writing and, and how this scene plays out He's able to say the most outrageous things, like, so that you feel like you've been slapped in the face, but he just keeps going. Like he gets away with it somehow because he just commands the room and there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. He's very backhanded.
2: (laughs) He's very backhanded, but in a very proper way.
1: I'm really looking forward to this guy and, and over the course of the rest of the season, seeing where, like you said, where he lands. That's great. Well, let's talk a little bit about Rafi. We haven't talked about her mission. This is kind of going on in concert with everything else, kind of separate from what's going on. She's investigating this attack. Yeah, this and it turns out to be, yeah, this like portal style weapon or something. Um, she has to figure out who the red lady is. Is it a buyer? Is it a is it the perpetrator? And then she realizes it's a target, and we get, you know, the Rachel Garrett Red Lady statue. I was kind of like, oh, Red Lady, is Michael Burnham showing up? Is the Red Angel again? What's going on here? <laughs> that, that did actually make me think a little bit of like, ooh, are they going
2: to acknowledge the existence of the Discovery incident, I, I think is what they call it or something? like, Because there was a very, you know, at the end, I think it was what, season three or whenever whenever Michael goes into the future, there's a, that good like, great, let's never talk of this again. And Definitely, they don't. But it would be interesting for at least some kind of knowledge to to come for forth from all of this.
1: Oh, I'm thinking like that conspiracy theory guy from Lower Decks, where he's like, "There was this whole thing. This ship could yeah. travel on mushrooms, and this flying woman went through time." And people are like, "Okay, buddy. Wow. Yeah. Jeez. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this guy's lost it. <laughs>
2: yeah. Because I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of pieces that they could just easily connect if they wanted to. Again, like I said, as long as they do that, they've got a go back and make sure that it's being, um, that there's no loose ends being left behind. I am happy though, because I'm looking at what is determined as who are going to be doing the directing. And it looks like we're getting freaks for episodes three and four for sure.
1: That sounds right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was what I'd read. Yeah. So yeah, Rafi figures this out, but is unable to stop the attack in time. And, and we kind of see that you know, this is some new menace that's out out there. We also have this mysterious faceless handler that's communicating with her uh, via text message, basically. That's interesting. I wonder if that's someone.
2: I like that they're giving Rafi a lot to do, and and she is a she is an interesting character. Um, I loved her her struggles that she's managed to overcome. Um, I really actually liked her story in season one, specifically. Um, especially around how she felt with her son. And and so she's a very likable character, so giving her something really complicated to do makes me very happy. Um, I never really connected with, like, Gerardi as much, per se, or Rios. I, I mean, I liked Rios to some degree, but I found them both, like, kind of unlikable in certain cases, whereas I didn't find Raffi pitiable. I felt Raffi was a very texture-y character who had a lot to her, but, you know, seeing her in uniform in the next season was just fantastic so
1: and I do like that there's an acknowledgement of those struggles in the past but not a like not completely abandoning them exactly I do have to say I was not fooled at the beginning and I'm surprised looking online how many people were really thinking like oh no she's fallen off the wagon this has happened Uh, I was like no I I, I immediately felt like she was undercover or something like that that said, when she gets her hands on the narcotics, you can tell it's still a struggle, right? The temptation's like she, there. Absolutely. Once you're an addict, you are always an addict and it's, it's a lifelong struggle. So I really enjoyed, enjoyed maybe the wrong word. I really appreciated seeing that struggle played out and the fact that it's not just swept under the rug. She's in this situation where there's that temptation around her all the time and she's dealing with it. Really incredible. And Michelle Hurd is just so good. Like her reaction when the recruitment center on Metalis Prime is attacked and, and her shock and despair. And that, I think maybe that's where where I'm kind of maybe leaning in. If they're going to
2: pass the torch to anyone, I would, I would watch a Raffi series. Just the way they're portraying her already... That the leaning in that direction, I would definitely watch a Rafi series. She's interesting. She's complicated. She is willing to get dirty. I just felt like the writing was trying to do more than than just say like, oh, same old, same old for Raffi kind of thing. So I also didn't buy the beginning either. I was like, oh, she's up to something. But also who better to play the part, right? And, and I guess it's a testament to her progress and strength. So yes, I'm interested to see what happens here. Um, Her sort of side quest story and all of this obviously is eventually going to find more connective tissue with the the main plot, Uh, but very interesting beginning. And I hope, I hope this is a cool setup.
1: Well, speaking of setup, (laughs) we come to our final scenes of the show and our introduction to this guy that turns out to be Beverly Crusher's son. And that's, I mean, all we can say for sure about him at this point, but I will say I am getting huge Tom Hardy Shinzon vibes from the guy, right at the end. And Ed Spilliers, great actor. I loved him in Downton Abbey. I know he's been in a bunch of other stuff, but that's kind of where I know him from. I mean, I look at him, look at him. <laughs> I mean, come on, right? Yeah. Come on. <laughs> I guess,
2: and, and again, this is our, I, I, I Googled this just to see if I'm unique or not. And it looks like 30 other reviewers already have uh, said this, but I am not fully convinced he's a son. Hmm. I think he's a clone.
1: That I mean, that could be too. I think Let, he's, like- ja-
2: he's either Jack's clone or he's an android and he's basically hmm. made into Jack. I, I think, I think Crusher has been gone for 20 years and I think she has inverted a bit and which will make her a more interesting character, right? But that's where I'm at. I think when I first saw him, when I saw him acting, when I saw him, like he even looks like that actor from the holodeck who played Jack, remember? Um, I forget. That
1: worked, yeah. Yeah.
2: Like there's, there's like, they cast him well. Uh, so I do kind of wonder if perhaps what we're looking at is not a son, which actually I think kind of keeps that sort of always infatuated, never never realized feeling of, of Jean-Luc and Crusher, that they were always just near to the goal but never quite there. And maybe because of that, Crusher you know, obviously seeing Wesley grow up um, and then join with the Traveler and stuff like that, Um, she's definitely estranged from the men in her life, right? Every one of the men in her life is estranged from her, either through death, through, you know, moving on into a higher plane of existence and going into more amazing things and and whatever else, and then the almost but not quite of Jean-Luc Picard. I don't think it would be outside of her motivations to be like, screw it, I'm going to make a Jack clone.
1: That's interesting. I like that thought. And if you look at the closing credits of this episode, there are little Easter eggs and hints and clues that are related to who, whichever cast member's name is on the screen at the time. Mm -hmm. And for Ed Spilliers, it was a uh, DNA double helix with a bunch of, uh, you know, listing the the genome and, and stuff. So that could be something along those lines that what you're saying or it could be like what's his lineage what's his Mm -hmm. who is he descended from yeah so i that could go either way interesting well with
2: picard sort of doing away with the things of his past right he he is very much moving on and 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 not really relying on the history of his uh, of his achievements or, or or anything that he's discovered, right? It's very kind of at the end of Star Trek Generations when he picks up that that really cool clay figurine that he was super fascinated with when he saw it in in the series. I forget what episode it was, but it's some archaeological thing. The chase, to, yeah, yeah, and then like he just sort of drops it, <laughs> like whatever after the Enterprise has crashed. Um, outside of those little inconsistencies. This shows that Jean-Luc Picard has moved on in a lot of ways. He no longer is as attached, so I feel like it makes him ready to be a different person warf is a very different person in this series and i see crusher potentially being a very different person and you even saying like they had to really dig back to find her nostalgic elements um, and stuff like that they're doing more with the character so why not do something really drastic they have the room right there's there isn't a precedent for dr crusher other than being like a responsible carer who has a bit of a tryst with the captain kind of thing. Like, that's how she was written originally, right? And she becomes more three-dimensional as time moves on, uh, or multi-dimensional as time moves on. But this would be an interesting thing where she's never gotten over Jack. I think that's that's abundantly clear, right? Even in Even in the autobiography of Jean-Luc Picard, Jack comes up a lot. He's important. So... I would be interested to see what they do with her.
1: Definitely. Well, more to come for sure. And I know we didn't say we were necessarily reviewing the episode or, or rating it or anything, but what'd you think of this? Is this uh, good? Is it bad?
2: Well, nothing so black and white, my friend. But uh, <laughs> there is always, and it's a bit of a dying argument because we're swimming in Trek right now. Uh, is the idea of well, you should just be happy? There's Star Trek. You don't remember, right? You know, at the end of season four <laughs> of Enterprise, it was the dark time, right? There was nothing except for Star Wars, ah, right, and all this. And then, but then, you know, obviously, like Battlestar Galactica was around that time. You could always go back to some delicious Babylon Five, and you know, I mean, without streaming service and whatnot helping resurrect Star Trek no I can appreciate that just having Trek on the screen is good I have found that some of the Trek like you've said has been they've either been to hell with the fans or they seem afraid of the fans or sometimes they want to do something different and then the fans get mad so then they like immediately retract it which then wipes the story (laughs) and whatnot so I guess like the showrunner is the showrunner the actors are in and they've filmed it so let's not mess with it. Let's just let this story go. Let's see it to its end, its final conclusion. We don't need to worry about people being happy or angry or anything else about those sorts of things. Let's just get a good story in there. So this first episode was very nostalgia heavy and I like that because I like nostalgia, but also if you have no reference for it, then it's just a bunch of cool imagery. And for some of us, maybe that much nostalgia is a little exhausting to sustain throughout a multi-episode arc. So I hope that's it. I hope we've, we've got our nostalgia bomb. There'll be a few more through. I'm, I'm absolutely certain of it, but let's not lean on it. And, um, I really want to see these actors get back into their old, uh, their old skins and, and interact with each other. And I've already felt that way. So I would say out of 10, I am like an eight out of 10 hopeful. And, uh, but I, I'm, I'm reserving whether or not this is good or bad yet, but I enjoyed it. Yeah. is Is that a good way of saying I'm hopeful?
1: Yeah. It's, it's the cautious optimism that like, let's be fair, Picard seasons one of one and two have conditioned us to have a little bit where like season two started out so strong. And honestly, I feel like it, it kind of went all over the place towards the end. And I guess part of me is a little wary that that might happen again. I have indications and hints that that's not the case this season based on people I trust who have seen quite a bit further ahead and, and feel like it's more coherent and cohesive, but I don't know that yet. So I'm a little wary, but I really enjoyed this hour of television. It was great to see Picard and Riker on screen together again, being Picard and Riker uh, on the bridge of a starship. Interestingly enough, being the bad on the ship under false pretenses that he so hated when admirals came aboard his ship. So in that way I'm kind of with Shaw a little bit. Like this is Admiral Pressman coming aboard trying to use the enterprise to test a cloaking device. <laughs> 100%, yeah.
2: And 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 those little those little nods I think are really great. I think ultimately what Picard tried to do was tell a human story, right? Very human, very gritty, very, you know, like if you think about draughty killing Maddox, you know, um, that made her completely unlikable. Like I just, after that point, I wrote that character off. Like honestly, as much as they tried to rehabilitate her a few times, I was like, next, like, you made this character completely unredeemable in my eyes. Um and they've done that a few times by being like, you know, we will make this as gritty as possible. You know, and if you think about the the Romulan siblings in the first series, like the 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 sister whose name completely escapes me. And that's the problem, right? She is so one dimensional and so unlikable. Like she should have been a Sailor Moon villain. Like that's the vibe I got off of her. Just completely unredeemably evil. The good in people need to also be done. And I think the only character that they did that effectively consistently was with Raffi. And I'm glad they've kept her for that reason, um, because she weathered a lot of those pieces of her in a really positive way. So give your characters some more depth, some more dimensions. That's perfectly fine. Give Crusher some, you know, some flaws and some this and that's and whatever else is, but... Do not make them completely irredeemably unlikable like you have in the past is the only other thing I'd say.
1: Well, we want to hear everyone else's thoughts as well. So please reach out to us, positivelytrek at gmail.com or check us out on Facebook in the Positively Trek discussion group. We would love to hear from you. Uh, You can also find my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Productions. That huge Easter egg video is out now, so... Go watch that and let me know what I missed. I'm not going to say if I missed anything, just let me know what I missed. Cause I know I did. <laughs> well, thank you all so much for joining us. We really, really appreciate you. And thanks of course, to the Patreon supporters. We really appreciate your making these episodes possible. We will see you in the next one until then, as always stay positive.